Well, before I read this passage and pray, um, this has just been on my heart. I, I want you to know when I pray prior to speaking, um, that prayer is important to me, but I want it to be important to you. I was just at the Nats game, and uh, last week, I, I won't say anything about how badly they played, um, but, you know, at every sporting event, the first thing they do is they play the national anthem. And then the game gets on, and, and that gets well left behind. And, and you know, it's just, a, it's just a thing we always do. Prayer is not the national anthem of preaching. Okay, when I pray before, it's not just like I'm just doing the national anthem so we can get into the preaching. It really is the beginning of the message. It's the beginning of us connecting with the Lord so that we might be recipients of his word. And so when I pray, I am not just praying for myself. I'm praying for you as well. And, and I want and ask you to do the same. Would you pray for one another? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for yourselves so that we are positioned appropriately to hear from God? That it's not just this rote thing we do as kind of the national anthem of the message. So as I read this passage and then pray Uh, I appreciate you praying with me. Well, we're continuing our series in John's Gospel. Uh, Last week, we began chapter 10, this wonderful passage on the Good Shepherd. And this morning, we're going to finish up with chapter 10. So if you look at John 10 and starting in verse 22, read along with me. At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, 
even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Father, thank you that your words are true and your words are alive and your words are powerful and your words are life-changing and your words are life to us. Lord, as we again read these words, as we listen to you speak to us, would you enable us to hear clearly your voice as your sheep? Would you enable us to understand your words that we might follow you? Father, I ask that you would help me to appropriately and wisely speak your words that your church may be edified and encouraged this morning and all that you might be glorified in Jesus name amen well verse 22 and 23 give us a timeline from the time where verse 21 has ended and the blind man has been healed Jesus um, is now in in Jerusalem at the feast of dedication well this with the blind man being healed was at the end of the feast of booths and so there's about a a two month or so interval between the time the blind man was healed and now in this season of winter at the feast of dedication it is a feast that was actually not instituted by God, but it was a feast instituted by the Jews. Jesus is walking in this colonnade of Solomon. It's wintertime because it's cold, and in Jerusalem at that time in the winter, it can be rainy and cold, and so there's, and it's understandable why he's walking there, and it is during this feast, and this feast took place because in 170 BC, 170 years before Christ was born, this gentleman named Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian king who came in and desecrated the temple of the Jews. He brutalized them. He persecuted them. And one man arose and his brothers named Judas Maccabee, and he arose and he defeated this king and they went into the temple and they purified the temple and they relit all of the lamps in the temple 
And so another lighting ceremony, and this was a time where they rededicated. They dedicated the temple, and the king was the king of Syria was defeated, and God's name was once again restored to this place. Well, as a as a Jewish kid growing up, I know about this feast because it takes place in the winter time. It takes place in December, and in as a Jewish kid, we call it Hanukkah. And it was a holiday where we celebrated this feast of the lights and a menorah, which is held eight candles, would be lit. And you would light one each day because they celebrated for eight days. And the, the Jews have, um, Jewish folks have a uh, sort of a legend about this where there was only enough oil to light the lamps for one day, but they lasted eight days. And so they celebrate Hanukkah. But for the, a Jewish kid growing up, the great thing about Hanukkah is that you get a gift every day for eight days. And, and you can't imagine my disappointment when my parents decided to no longer celebrate Hanukkah, but Christmas. I mean, <laughs> there was a change in my gift package. Well, this here is interesting in that it is Jesus's last public encounter with the Jews until he returns in three months for his final Passover his final time in Jerusalem, just three months away. He has been in Galilee and Judea for nearly three years, teaching, preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders. And this is his final period of ministry that leads to the ultimate purpose for why he came. Now, for eight months, I have been teaching through this gospel, and each week, I have been committed to quoting why John wrote this book from John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel and he recorded the signs and wonders that took place under Jesus' ministry, recorded the gospel presentations that Jesus gave to the Jews, the Pharisees, to all around, to the Samaritans. He records all these things. They are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Now, it is unusual to give the reason for writing a book at the end of a book. If you read most books, they have an introduction, and in that introduction, we see the author's reason for writing. John has a very significant reason why he includes his purpose at the end of the book. It's because the greatest sign of all that brings men and women to faith in Christ has not yet occurred. It's his death and resurrection. So he saves it to the end. The previous six signs, water to wine, healing of the the official son, the lame man walking, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and the blind man seeing, all point to Jesus Christ. That's why they're called signs. They point to Christ. But the final sign, Christ's death and resurrection, 
The final sign is what makes salvation possible. And in these last verses in John 10, they helpfully explain John 20, 31. They help us to understand why Jesus is called the Messiah, the Son of God, and what that means for you and for me. In John 10, 22 through 42, which we just read, John 20, 31 comes out in living color. Now, living color is an old expression for those of us who grew up with black and white TV. All of you folks under the age of 50 probably have no idea what a black and white television is. That's all we had when I was growing up. Living color is, I mean, that was like the ultimate in televisions. And that's what John is doing here. He is in living color, putting flesh on this, who is the Messiah and who is the Son of God. And we get to see that here. And here's my proposition for those of you who want a title for this message. It's simply entitled, One Last Time. And my proposition, my dominant idea for this passage is, Because Jesus alone is the Messiah and the Son of God, He is our provision and protection when we believe and follow Him. Because Jesus alone is the Messiah and the Son of God, He is our provision and protection when we believe and follow Him. Two main points this morning. This passage that focuses on introducing Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And two, two titles that are preeminent in John's gospel that we might believe in Jesus. The two points are, because he is the Messiah, he is our protection. And because he is the Son of God, he is our provision. Because he is the Messiah, he is our protection. And because he is the Son of God, he is our provision. All right, number one, because he is the Messiah, he is our protection. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Being in the temple and being surrounded by the Jews, it's not surprising that this conversation takes place. What is stunning is the question they ask Jesus. How long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly who you are. They demand Jesus reveal who he is. As though for the past three years he said nothing and done nothing. For three years he has done signs For three years, he has told them who he is. For three years, he has been revealing the Father to them. He has just told them. He has just spent all these words talking about being the good shepherd. He's told them that He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. He has told them that before Abraham was, I am. He has used the title for God exclusively for Himself. And yet, because they are blind and deaf, they do not know the shepherd's voice. 
They, they say, tell us plainly. Kind of explain this to us. That Jesus wisely and helpfully returns to the metaphor of a shepherd again in verse 26 and tells them, listen, I, I have told you plainly, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. They can't understand who he is because they're not his. They don't belong to him. They are not of his flock. They are not of his sheep. They're not owned by him. They do not belong to him. Remember in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10, just a little bit earlier, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. They can't understand who he is because they don't know his voice. And because of their doubt and unbelief, and they do not believe that he is the Christ, it is tragic because they do not understand what he is offering. They do not understand what he can provide for them, which is salvation. D.A. Carson writes, John himself is convinced that the actual record of Jesus' words and works was more than enough to bring people to believe that the Son of God was Jesus. Indeed, for those with eyes to see, so deft had been Jesus' self-references, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of titles, his discussions of the relation between God and himself, that he has virtually pointed himself out as the Messiah. In other words, Carson is saying, he's done it. He's done it. And as Jesus has said earlier and now says again, it is his sheep who know his voice. It is his sheep who hear his voice. It is his sheep who follow him. And in verse 28, as our Messiah, Jesus makes this Stunning. Actually, verse 27 is stunning statement. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. As our Messiah... Jesus promises and gives eternal life. He has said earlier in verse 9 that he is the door to eternal life and all who enter that door will be saved by him. The gift of eternal life, though, is not all that he is offering. It is not all that he is telling us here. Jesus promises that this gift of eternal life will be protected and be preserved by both he and his Father. Do you get that? We will never perish. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you know his 
voice. If you follow His voice, your eternal life, your salvation is protected. It is preserved for all eternity. Now, there are those who want to destroy our faith in Christ. Jesus speaks of that earlier in John 10 when he talks about robbers and thieves and wolves. But regardless of who they are and how powerful they appear to be, these people are not mightier than the Lord. Jesus very clearly says that no one can snatch them out of his hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. What in your life can ruin your eternal destiny? Nothing. Nothing. Your neighbor's mocking cannot steal your place with Jesus Christ. Your family's opposition cannot steal your place with Jesus Christ. Your struggle with sin will not steal your place with Jesus Christ. Your doubts of assurance will not steal your place in Christ. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will be, all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. And none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. No one, nothing, will ever change what God has wrought in your heart. Nothing will change. You will not perish. You are His sheep. He has given you eternal life. You will never perish. No one will snatch you out of Christ's hands. His Father who has given you to Christ, who is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of His hand. And then Jesus makes this statement, I and the Father are one. You can't, and the reason he makes that statement is to just put a exclamation point on this, this statement about never perishing. He puts this exclamation point for you precisely because he is God. He can say these things. He can make this promise. He can tell you that you'll never perish because precisely He is God. He and the Father are one. And because you are His sheep and He is your shepherd and you know His voice and you follow His voice, you will not perish. 
because he and the Father are one. And what a wonderful introduction here, again, to the Trinity, to the truth about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus finally does tell them what they want to hear in this passage. He is God. He is the Messiah. They are one. Now, now, when he says he and the Father are one, they are not one person. They are the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, but each fully God. But they are one in essence. They are one in purpose. They are one in perfection. They are one in holiness. They are one in sovereignty. They are one in immutability, never changing. They are all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere at all times, shepherding you caring for you, protecting you from perishing, protecting you from those who you might think are mightier than you. That is what the shepherd does. That is why Jesus continues the metaphor of a shepherd. The shepherd protects the flock from predators and no one will prey on you. Because he is the Messiah, he is our protection. Secondly, because he is the Son of God, he is our provision. Do you, do you see how John is filling in all of the areas from 2031 where he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He has just explained to us who the Messiah is and what he does. And now he's helping us understand who the Son of God is. Because he is the Son of God, he is our provision. Jesus being the Son of God points to the close relationship he has with the Father. As a sheep and shepherd, we have a very similar relationship with Jesus. To believe in Jesus as the Son of God is to believe that all that Jesus has said about his relationship to his Father, why he came, what he has done, why he does the things he does, and what it means to you and to me. You know, no sacrifice, animal or man, would sufficiently and appropriately satisfy God's justice and wrath towards our sin. Nothing. A perfect and holy God can only accept a sacrifice that is perfect and holy. Now, God in Christ, our provision, met this impossible need by the only way possible. He sent his son to become a man fully man, yet fully God. Redemption and salvation are found in Christ alone. This is, this is John's message of man's complete ruin, but God's perfect remedy in Christ. His provision in Christ. Verses 32 and 33, Jesus Jews picked up stones again in verse 31 to stone him, which typically is the case and again reveals that after he has spoken, after he has told them, he has answered their question, tell us plainly, okay, I and the Father are one. Oh, thanks. Now let's stone you. Let's arrest you. Let's do it all again. And in, understand in, 
in ancient Near Eastern times, at, at this time in Israel's history, being under Roman government, Roman oppression, only the Romans were allowed to put someone to death, and that by crucifixion, primarily. So for the Jews to pick up stones to kill him is literally a lynch mob. That is what is happening here. And Jesus answers them and says, listen, I have shown you many good works. Now, we have read about six signs. But do you remember in verse 30 of chapter 20, Jesus said, there are so many signs, or, or John says, there are so many signs that Jesus has done. I, all the books in the world could not contain them. We've not, I've not written them. But the ones he's included are included so that you would believe. So they've, they've been given all they need to believe. He said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. I understand what the play on words here. Jesus has been the one doing the signs. But he's told them time and again that I do the works that my Father has sent me to do. I do the works that I've seen my Father doing, which could only mean I've been in heaven. I do the works that you may believe that I come from the Father. I do the works that you might believe I am the Son of God. And what do they do? I've shown you many good works. For which of them are you going to stone me? Which ones? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answers them. And he answers them in this cryptic, it seems cryptic. I remember the first time I read this, I thought, what in the world is he talking about? And, and I went to the, the passage in Psalm uh, 82, and, and I read the passage, and I thought, what in the world is he talking about? I, I'm, still, I'm still not quite getting it. But as I, as I was studying this, it just now begins to make sense, and hopefully I can help it make sense to you. He writes in verse, uh, he says in verse 34, is it not written in your law? So he's talking to the Jews about their law, the law that they respect and love and adhere to, the law that was given to them by Moses from God, the law that they live by today. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And he's quoting Psalm 82.6. Now Psalm 82.6 and the whole psalm is about the time when God had given the law to Israel. And Israel was receiving the law from God. And at that time, God, in, had, God communicated to the, the nation of Israel that you are my child. You are my firstborn. You are sons of God, small g. So G-O-D, small. And so when Jesus is quoting this psalm, he, he is referring these, these Pharisees, these Jews, back to the law of God so that they cannot argue with him because they can't argue with his law. And so he says, listen, the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, the scriptures say that men can be called sons of God, that men can be called God's rulers, not God in the sense of God the Almighty, God the Eternal One, but 
judges and rulers. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. And he's saying, look, what I'm saying about being God and being the son of God is not in contradiction to the scripture. It actually fits in the scripture. Here's Psalm 82, verse 6. Do you get it? And of course, the Jews do not get it. All they hear is his claim to be God, a claim that actually is right and true. But they don't get it. Jesus literally turns the word upon them because he knows how seriously they take the word of God. So he has turned the word around them. Now, how can these trained men in Scripture deny what Scripture says? Because look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him. He tells them just earlier, he has given them all this truth. And in verse, he says, verse 36, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? Jesus has said, I've been sent into the world as I am the son of God. I've come that you might believe in me because the father is in me and I'm in the father. And yet you do not believe. Why? Simply because they're not his sheep and they don't know his voice. And it is tragic. It is tragic. Jesus was sent into the world because God so loved the world, he gave his only son that who would believe in him would not perish but have life everlasting. Luke writes in Acts 13, all who were appointed to eternal life might believe. And these men did not believe. What is so tragic is they reject the Savior. They reject the provision that God has offered them. He sent Jesus into the world. He consecrated and sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus did works that they would believe, if not in him, in the works. And it is tragic that they did not believe. And so they try to arrest him. And, and, and here is... I think one of the most powerful statements of God's sovereignty, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Four times up to this point, the Jews have tried to kill Jesus. Three times they've tried to arrest him, and every time they have failed. And the reason they failed, because God's sovereign plan had not yet come about. Jesus' hour has not yet come. But let me tell you something. His hour is coming. The tension is building. Jesus, when he escapes, when he eludes these men who want to arrest him and kill him, he is aware his hour is coming. He is aware that he is just three months away from Jerusalem and that final Passover. He is aware. And I, I wouldn't I would venture to say that the anxiety in Jesus is building. I would venture to say the tension in Jesus is building. I would venture to say that the trepidation is heightening. 
So much so to the point that when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times, Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from my lips. He knows what is coming. He knows his hour is coming. And tragically, these men reject Jesus' last public offer. Because when he enters Jerusalem, there's no public ministry going on. Now, his offer of salvation still exists. Because in verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. So Jesus removes himself to a remote place to await his return to Jerusalem in a few months to await that moment when he will be crucified on the cross, when he will offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitute that we would not receive the wrath of God. He awaits for three months this moment he knows is coming where God the Father will turn away from him. I don't, I can't imagine what that three-month period could be like. And that it only to be worse when he gets to Jerusalem. Now the metaphor of the good shepherd is not over. We have seen that as the, he is the Messiah who is the protector. He is the son of God who is the provider. He provides himself the salvation of the world. But the metaphor of the good shepherd is not over and it never will be. Jesus will always be our good shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. The good shepherd provides for his sheep and cares for his sheep and protects his sheep. This passage is the strongest affirmation in all of Scripture about God's absolute security for Christians. But in a room this size, with this many folks, I would have no doubts that there are those who have doubts about their assurance. And if you struggle with your assurance, here is your passage. Here is your passage. A passage that affirms God's love for you. That affirms God's protection of you. That affirms God's never letting you go. Because as Colossians 3, 3 says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you doubt? Here is your passage. But maybe you don't doubt. Maybe you fear. Maybe you fear that you will lose your salvation because of your struggle with sin. First Peter 25. Peter says this. Peter, who was instructed by Jesus to love the sheep, to care for the sheep, 
says this, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is the good shepherd. Your struggle with sin will not keep you from heaven. We all struggle with sin. And we will until the day we go home to be with the Lord. But do not fear. Do not fear. Because this passage is for you. You will never perish. Nothing. No sin. No wolf. No robber. No thief. No doubt. Will snatch you from the Father's hand. And one other, just to consider. Um, you could have doubt, you could have fear, but you could also be forgetful. You can forget that he knows you by name. You can forget that he knows you by name. And if you think he forgets your name, you can easily think he forgets your circumstances and your life and what you face. But he doesn't. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. Ephesians 1.4 again. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, you were chosen by name. And your only responsibility is to follow. And that is just to ask yourself this morning, am I following? Am I trusting God's word here? That he is greater than all. That no one is able to take me out of the Father's hand. That I will never perish. That he has given me eternal life. I don't want you to doubt. And I don't want you to fear. And I don't want you to forget. You have a good shepherd. Father, I know there are those this morning who do struggle with doubt and fear and even forgetfulness. I pray I pray that your word would become alive to them this morning, that they would not, they would no longer doubt, they would no longer fear, that you would remove those doubts and fears through the power of your word. And that you would remind them once again that you know their name, that you formed them in the womb, that you were fashioning them long before the world was ever created and all because of your love for them. Oh Lord, help them to remember these things in Jesus' name. Amen.